Hello, friends, and welcome to the Coffee and Beer Podcast with Nick and the Doctor. Sponsored by Black Rifle Coffee Company. Black Rifle Coffee Company was built on the mission to serve coffee and culture to people who love America. And Mike, I've got a hot cup of that great Black Rifle Coffee Company coffee this morning. I need it. Uh, my son has been up coughing at night and keeping me awake. So uh, anyway, uh, he's doing okay. But you know, that's, that's just, yeah, that's just being the parent of a youngin. You know all about that. So today, we're going to be talking with outdoor writer Dave Moss. Looking forward to that great conversation. He's a big-time archery hunter, currently with uh, Grandview Outdoors. Which we'll talk about that. This is also an Ask NDA Anything episode. Got a couple good questions we look forward to bringing you. The B-Team report, and I got one, unfortunately, a fresh one. <laughs> so we'll go there, and I'm sure the doctor has one of his own. And speaking of the doctor... Let's say hello to a man that is fed up with Syracuse basketball, the doctor, Mr. Mike Gremlin. Mike, are you really fed up with Syracuse basketball? Do you follow it much? Um, I do. I mean, a huge Syracuse fan, football, basketball, lacrosse. Um, It's always been, well, when you grow up in central New York as a young person, that was almost like our professional team. And so... Yeah, I'm I'm a huge Syracuse fan, and I wouldn't say that I'm fed up with it because I'm looking forward to a a new a next generation. <clears throat> but with the exit of Jim Beheim, I got to see him coach when I was younger. My daughter has got to see him coach. My middle daughter's a huge sports fan, so she's got to see him coach. So that's a, you know he has had an epic career. But what I'm more I don't want to say fed up with, but more disappointed with was his exit lacked the the pomp and circumstance that I believe at least I felt as a fan that should have been there so um I'll just leave it at that yeah and that's kind of what I was thinking when I was watching it all go down I thought about you and I thought oh this is how I'm going to introduce the doctor this week because you never know how I'm going to do that (laughs) no I don't and uh I thought the same thing I think in sports I mean in a lot of professions but in sports you see it because it's very visible is sometimes people just stay too long. And then Mm -hmm. it becomes awkward for everybody because that person believes they can still do it at the level they used to. And the people around that person tend to honor the legacy and nobody wants to be the one to say, Hey, it's time, it's time to move on. And so it's kind of a no win situation for everybody. And yeah. And so what happens is the exit is not smooth. It's clunky. And then you only hope that at some point they can come back and everybody can patch things up and do it the right way. So that's kind of how I felt about that situation. Yeah. And at this point, it's still, it still was clunky. The, the press conference where the university, the new coach and the old coach all came together. It still wasn't, I mean, when you see coaches go out like Mike Krzyzewski and things like that, that's what I was expecting and didn't, didn't really get that. I don't think the fans got that either. So I, I almost feel like we were robbed of that chance to, to reflect and, you know, to respect the, the Syracuse basketball history that he had legacy, literally that he had created. So, oh, well. Yeah. Yeah. Just one of those things. So, Hey, incidentally, it's funny when we were setting the interview up with Dave, he emailed me back We had several emails back and forth because I apparently can't keep my schedule straight. But uh, anyway, he said, Oh, he said, by the way, he's like, why is Mike known as the doctor? And so I made up some crazy stuff that I'm not even going to tell you what I told him. So, he, oh, you know, yeah. Ouch. No, 
but I, I, I didn't explain to him why why you're the doctor. So uh, at any rate, hey, uh, ask NDA anything. We got a couple. Good, good. And so the first one, and speaking of not being, uh, this this happens to me all the time. I, I always want to make sure that I read the question right from the email, and I don't have it queued up, but I got it. Okay, this is one on rubs. And so this comes from uh, Jason in Tennessee. Jason has sent us questions before and good ones. And so, yeah, if you've sent a question, by the way, to ask NDA anything, you can continue to send them. You don't have to stop at one. We're not a, we're not a once in a lifetime tag here. <laughs> so uh, he said, I have a question about buck rubs. I own 30 acres that I bought in 2021 and have hunted since 1995. Over the years, I've seen very little rubs on this property compared to other properties and national forest lands I've hunted during the same times. I watch, I walk much of the property each season and will see between one and five rubs. Hunting and trail cams have shown many different bucks in all age classes using the property. And last season, I had 12 different bucks using the property, uh, but only two, only had two rubs. What causes bucks to rub less in an area while other places seem to have a rub on every tree? So because of the next question, Mike, I want to go first on that one, but I'll give you a crack at this one first. Well, uh, first and foremost, I'm going to have to say uh, thank you for the question, but full disclosure here, I think that there is probably a a more accurate scientific answer, but what I'm going to tell you is from my own personal experience here at my place, because I do not, I, I, very similar to your property, I don't have a lot of rubs here. And and Nick, you know as well as I do, the property that we share, that farm that we hunt in Pennsylvania has a ton of rubs. And the one thing I'm going to say that I actually believe from me seeing it, have video support of it from my cameras and things like that, is that I believe that bucks tend to make more rubs when they're in a location that is does not force them to keep moving. So for example, in and around where they're bedding, in and around where they might be staging up into some thicker cover before they leave it in the evening, um, you'll tend to see more rubs and higher concentrations. So for me, as I'm trying to make this place thicker and a little bit more difficult for a deer to navigate from point A to point B where they can do it very quickly, you you don't get those cluster of rubs. You don't get a ton of rubs. You kind of get the rubs that are more of like a frustration rub that's on a trail. They stop for a minute at a terrain change. They might the, the limb might actually graze against their face. They turn, they'll work the tree a little bit, and then they move on. So that's what my two senses on that. I don't know if there's scientific evidence to support that, but that's my answer. No, I think that's a good answer. And there's with anything, we're never going to know everything about deer. We don't know what goes through their mind. We don't know exactly why they do certain things. And that's why the research and the science part of it is so much fun and so interesting and always changing. We're never going to quit learning and we're never going to learn at all. So that's a cool thing. Uh, I think, yeah, a lot of your answer was sort of what I was thinking. First of all, uh, you mentioned, uh, Jason, your property's 30 acres. And if your 30 acres isn't some of those things that the doctor described there, you're not going to see a lot of rubs. And the other thing too is age class can tend to be important. And so I don't, on my property in Pennsylvania, I get some rubs, not not a ton of rubs, but where I hunt in Delaware is some of the most 
aggressive uh, sign that I've seen anywhere I've hunted in my entire hunting career. And I think, well, I know a big part of that is competition for does. There's, there's a very uh, high population of older age class bucks there. It's a, it's a gigantic swamp, thousands of acres, deer get old. And it's, it's, it's more of what I would call it a true rut, what you expect to see when there's competition for, for breeding. And so on my Pennsylvania property, I certainly uh, am blessed to have a decent age class, a, a decent mixture of age classes of bucks and some mature bucks. And I think that's why I get some of that sign. But if I had an older, if, if more of the deer were older there, I would expect there to be even more sign. And then, you know, and, and to throw other scenarios into this, then you have some years where it's like, no matter where I go, the sign just is not as much. And even in Delaware this year, there were certainly sign, but not like I've seen in previous years. And so I ask myself, why is that? Why do I see more sign in some years and not in others? So it's a fascinating question and there is not a black and white answer to it. And so I think the doctor and I have probably covered it about the best we can with a little bit of science and a little bit of anecdotal uh, research and information. So great question though. Thanks, Jason. We appreciate that. All right, next question. And Mike, I will uh, take the lead on this. This is, uh, uh, so the question is, uh, oh, come on, get to the question. I wanna make sure I read this property properly. Uh, okay, here we go. How did, this is from uh, Ed in Pennsylvania. It's funny, Mike, we rarely get questions from Pennsylvania, but here's one. Ed in Pennsylvania, how do you feel about the opening of firearm season being on a Saturday instead of a Monday in Pennsylvania? All right. So normally these ones that are very state specific, I may not include in the show, but this one I wanted to include because it, it helps me talk about a broader position of the National Deer Association on these things. And by the way, like my inbox is, every day I've got something in there about what's your position on this, what's your position on that. And we don't always necessarily agree, even with a member, a member's position on something may not be something that we, I don't wanna say agree with, but our, the short of it is our positions are largely based almost almost wholly based on what the science says for the biological management of the animal. Okay, so we don't get into things like, uh, should we allow crossbows or what caliber of gun or whatever. We, we usually just rely on the state agencies to do that. Okay, our main focus is as long as we are not hurting populations of deer or hurting habitat, those are the positions we support. And so this particular one has, has become a hot button issue in Pennsylvania, and I've seen similar in other states where our firearm season here for the doctor and I's lifetime really has always started the Monday after Thanksgiving. So there's a lot of tradition built into that. Also in Pennsylvania, we have a situation where we've got the Northern Tier, which is famous for its hunting camps. And we're gonna get into hunting camps talking with our guests here in a little bit. And so there's this been this tradition of you have Thanksgiving with your family, you get all your gear together on Friday night and you head up to camp for the weekend. And those are very strong and deep traditions. Now, I did not have that tradition. The doctor did not have that tradition, but that are certainly many of the people we know did. So anyway, a few years ago, it, the opening day of the firearm season was moved to a Saturday. And the main reason for that was to give people who couldn't get Monday off to go hunting an opportunity to go hunting. And it also added another day into the season, another weekend day to the firearm season. 
And so from a personal perspective, I thought, well, that's, I'm not much of a firearms hunter. I mean, I've gone and I will go, but I don't do it much. But I thought just generally, well, that's really cool because people get an extra weekend. And also those people that couldn't get the days off can only hunt on the weekends got more time. So I thought it was great. Um, but the position of the National Deer Association on this is that we just look at what the polling says. The state agency has done scientific polling and the, the majority of the people like having the opener on Saturday. And it's most people cite it's more opportunity. And biologically, it doesn't impact the harvest, really. We're still harvesting the same number of deer in the state. And so our position is just simply polling shows that more people want it and it's more opportunity. So that's what we support. But really, at the end of the day, like personally, myself, and when we put these policies together, we don't really care because it's not impacting population. So if the polling were to come back, a new polling come back this year, and it said the majority won it back on Monday, then we would support that. And so we get a lot of flack sometimes, people saying, well, you know, you're doing it, you just support it this way because that's what the game commission wants to do or doesn't want to do. And that's not true at all. Uh, the polling is going to drive a lot of our position on these things, whether it be Pennsylvania or any other state. And if the majority wants something and it's not impacting populations negatively, then that's what we're going to support and vice versa. If something was proposed that was showing that there was a problem, then we're going to support that. Same thing with like Sunday hunting the states that don't have it and all these different things. So don't mean to get on a soapbox about that, but I think it's important to people understand where our positions come from and, and they are zero percent based on our own personal feelings about it as i said i grew up with it on, on monday that was great now it's a saturday that's great you know really don't care i just want to make sure we're doing the right thing for the resource so uh mike your thoughts on that one um i think that you covered that very well and i'm going to add just a, a little bit of extra food for thought and that is how economically society has changed because when you and I were growing up and you remember this, pretty much the world came to an end Saturday evening in regards to being able to go and get something in a store. You know, like when convenience stores first opened up, it's like, oh my God, there's a store open Saturday night at 11 o'clock at night. And then not even to mention Sunday, Sunday, it was just, it was church or nothing, uh, literally. And so um, as more and more people in the workforce has moved to these very irregular and unexpected schedules, I support anything that gives people the opportunity to get outside in this day and age, because we are losing so many hunters. I think that if someone's able to get out on Saturday because they have a very odd work schedule, all the better. And additionally, you and I know, I mean, we were very lucky where we went to a, well, now I will say this once I moved to Pennsylvania, um, to where a school actually gave us off Monday so that we could go and hunt. But when I was up in New York and there's a lot of places in Pennsylvania that just don't, you know, didn't allow students to be off on Monday, they had to attend school. And this is going to make sure that we have a better way to make sure that all young hunters have a chance to have the availability to hunt on the first day and um, spend time with their family. So from, I'm giving more of a personal standpoint. I'm just wanting to say that these are additional things I think people should think about. We don't know what Dave's stance is. It was Dave from Pennsylvania, correct? Uh, it was uh, Ed. 
Ed, Ed, I'm sorry. Sorry, Ed. Um, we don't know what Ed's stance is, and we're not saying that, um, you know, one way or the other, him bring up this question is a, a problem. I'm just saying that, you know, we should look at the big picture and as hunters, anything that supports more people getting out and doing that activity and supporting it and helping out the economy and um, promoting the future of hunting, uh, I'm all for. Yeah. To me, I would think if I, if I was, a, if I mostly hunted with a firearm, I'd love the idea that you start on Saturday and, and we get that Sunday. So you get two straight days, a full weekend of deer hunting. Uh, I was incidentally, I wasn't even in the state this year for that. So um, it didn't impact me at all, but I would just, I would think that that would be a heck of an attraction. At least it would be to me, but maybe, maybe folks would say, okay, well, you can still start on Monday and do that the following weekend. Sure. I get it. So anyway, the most important thing folks is make your voice heard, let people know. And if, if uh, you get a chance to be part of the polling, give your, give your answer. So, Hey, we got a great interview today. We want to get to outdoor writer, Dave Moss. We're going to get into a whole bunch of things. Uh, get into some hunting stories. We're going to talk about camp life, and it's just going to be a great conversation. So let's go ahead and jump into the interview. Dave, great to see you. Thank you for joining us on the Coffee and Deer podcast. Uh, Dave Moss joins us. He is the senior editor of Bow Hunting World and Archery Business Magazine and has a pretty cool and interesting career as an outdoor writer and someone that's been a professional in the outdoors industry. But Dave, everybody that we ever have on does a better job of describing themselves than I do. So let's turn it over to you and have you tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you for uh, letting me join you this morning. I'm a big fan of your podcast. I've listened to several of them in the past and um, always enjoyed them. My, my path into the outdoor world was really um, could be summed up in, in one word, and that would be accident. I went to college to be a high school math teacher with plans on being a high school coach. And when I needed to find a summer job before I was going to start student teaching in the fall, I got a job as a fishing guide in northern Minnesota. And then loved that and got involved in sporting retail, worked in a fishing store. And I ended up guiding for five summers in a row and worked fishing retail for the, what I would call the off season. And while I was working in the fishing retail store, these guys kept coming into the store to buy musky lures. We were kind of a musky specialty shop. And like every third, fourth day, they were coming in and buying musky lures. And I thought, what? And they were like my age. I thought, why are they buying all these musky lures? And I finally asked them when I was ringing them through at the register. This would have been mid-1980s. And they were working on a book called Northern Pike Muskie with a company called the Hunting and Fishing Library. And we sold some of their books in the store. And turned out that it was a publisher in town here in Minneapolis. And they were buying photo props for these books. So I became friends with them and it turned out that they needed help finishing up a final chapter, a where to go section of this Northern Pike Musky book. So I worked as a freelancer and completed that project. And then a year later, I did a similar where to go section for a whitetail deer book and then eventually landed a full-time job with them. And then went from book publishing 
to magazines when I landed a job with North American Hunter Magazine, and then ultimately um, to where I am now with Grandview Outdoors. That's interesting. And you're not the first person that we talked to, look, obviously, a lot of people in this industry that they didn't necessarily start out that way, but then they ended up here and you follow along those lines. So I'm interested. You went originally, you were going to teach and you said to, to coach sports, what sport? I would have loved. And I, and I, my kids ask me this all the time. Do you regret your career path? And I say, no, because I've had some wonderful opportunities and I love what I do. Uh, but I would have loved to have been a high school baseball coach. Very cool. Very and I coached youth baseball for both of my sons, you know, all the way through. But um, yeah, I would have, I think I would have excelled at that and I would have loved that. Good deal. Well, I am a high school baseball coach. You may not have known that. I didn't know that. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, that's why when you said baseball, I'm like, oh, that's perfect. But uh, have you been following incidentally any of the world uh, baseball classic or anything like that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. By the time folks hear this, that'll be well decided, but it's been an exciting tournament. And I, I like watching these guys that get paid millions and millions of dollars show their level of excitement for playing for their country and how they, they still, despite making that money, love, love the game very much. So that's really stood out to me. Yeah, I agree. Yep, it's been fun. All right, so anyway, you, you started out down that path and ended up where you are. Where are you living at now? I live uh, in a small town about 30 minutes west of the airport in Minneapolis. So I'm in the country, but not too far from a metropolitan area. Good deal. And is that where you grew up and spent most of your life? Yeah, I grew up in northeast Minneapolis uh, within sight of downtown and went to college at a small school, uh, small private school about an hour and a half uh, north of Minneapolis that had a, a large wildlife sanctuary on it, but I could bow hunt the adjacent properties and the property had a lot of lakes on it. So I was able to do some fishing. So Minnesota, particularly around the Twin Cities area has been my home, uh, but I spend a lot of time in Western Wisconsin. It's where my parents and siblings live and we own some property in Western Wisconsin. And then I also spend a lot of time in eastern South Dakota. So every year I'm deer hunting in uh, three states, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and South Dakota. Yeah, and three darn good ones. And shout out, by the way, to the MSP. Minneapolis Airport is one of the best in the country. Although I did spend about nine hours there earlier this year trying to get to, I don't remember where I was going, but I know I spent nine hours there because we had a snowstorm come in and I've had to spend an overnight there. And did the Mall of America thing and all that. So you live in a pretty cool place. Yeah, it is. It's a it's a nice blend of having everything that you want in an urban area, whether it's going to see, you know, professional sporting events or, you know, museums or theater or whatever. But boy, it's just a short drive, a really short drive. And you're into, you know, fantastic fishing along the river, you know, St. Croix River, Mississippi River, and then uh, obviously Wisconsin. Minnesota, South Dakota. I'm a, I'm a short drive to some really, really good deer hunting too. So let's transition into that then, because uh, obviously you're a big time bow hunter in particular. And so it might be an obvious answer, but maybe not. What, what was it that really fueled your passion to get into deer hunting uh, in particular bow, particularly bow hunting? Uh, I was blessed. Um, I've got a brother who's a year older than I am and we've always been best friends. And my father 
who thankfully is still with us. He'll be 86 uh, this December. I, I was lucky where I had a dad who was interested in bow hunting um, and then uncles and cousins who were interested in deer hunting. So I grew up, um, you know, doing gun safety at age 10 and heading up to northern Minnesota to a traditional deer camp. You know, a one room, a one room cabin with all of my uncles and my grandpa and dad and brother and cousins, you know, 10, 12 of us packed in a one room uh, deer shack with, uh, we had a little bit of private property, like 40 acres, but it butted up against a bunch of land that was owned by these companies who made stick matches, particularly diamond match company. Mm -hmm. And they allowed people to um, hunt their property. So this was far North central Minnesota. So wilderness, you know, timber wolf country, moose, um, very flat. And we would march out in the dark in a line, you know, all dressed in orange <laughs> on opening day. And, uh, you know, dad would, you know, Dave, go sit on that stump, you know, and I'll be back at, in five hours to check on you, you know, and then we, and then he'd hike further and he'd drop my brother off and then he'd hike farther and he would sit. And my brother and I talk about it now. It's really, it's really a miracle that the two of us um, caught the deer hunting bug because the hunting was so poor in terms of number of deer spotted. Now our camp, we sh we shot a few good bucks, certainly. You know, the older hunters, particularly my uncles and my, you know my dad and stuff. But you know, there were not many deer no agriculture you couldn't see beyond 20 yards you know in a, in a lot of cases uh, but i guess it was that whole camaraderie of camp and coming back and people telling stories and then occasionally people you know shooting something um that kind of got the bug started and then we when we bow hunted in western wisconsin and i started bow hunting at about age 12. you know that was totally different that was agriculture patchwork of farm and woods, we saw a lot of deer, uh, but not very many big deer, um, but we had a lot of action. So I guess it was the blend of the two, the Northern Minnesota big deer and the Western Wisconsin numbers that at least captured my interest. And, and I've been, uh, you know, passionate about it ever since. It's always interesting to me that the folks and <clears throat> Mike, you might be able to relate to this through conversations with people. And even when we first started hunting, there you didn't see the, as many deer as you do now. And it seems like the folks that grew up in that scenario where you just didn't see a whole lot loved it even more. And maybe it was just because you appreciated those, those chances when you did see a deer, let alone get one. So would you say that was similar to you, Dave? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've got a son who's a sophomore in college and one that's a senior in high school now. And... And they like to deer hunt and they've killed, uh, you know, a decent number of deer along the way. But as any good, you know, modern day father um, with hunting property, their their experience was totally different than mine. I, I got them started in western Wisconsin. We hunted on food plots, um, you know, pop up ground blind on the edge of the food plot. Uh, my oldest son shot a deer on his first night of bow hunting wow 
and then he shot a uh, you know a second deer that fall uh you know with a crossbow and my youngest son i want to say that he shot a deer his first uh first evening of a youth season with a with a rifle and you know it was tremendously fun and great memories but neither one of them are diehard deer hunters today my oldest is a diehard duck hunter and my youngest likes to hunt uh, but he would rather golf than anything else and they had supreme success right out of the gates um so i don't know maybe maybe it'll change i wasn't covered up in deer hunting when i was in high school i was more into sports i deer hunted but it was only after high school that i really got into deer hunting so there's a chance that maybe maybe they'll change i don't know yeah i think i find it strange that you can have children from the same family with the same experience and then have different outcomes uh, for example my children for the most part all had similar hunting exposure well two out of the three one has never gone because she had no interest and i never pushed that but or my son and my oldest daughter, they were both raised the same way, exposed to the same things, same locations. And my oldest daughter still likes to hunt. And my son is semi-interested in it, but is more interested in electronics and what's going on in social media and those types of things. So I think it's just, it's just almost like a crapshoot. But the one thing that I did here at one point in time is that anytime that you raise children in a hunting slash outdoor family and do it the right way, you're at least raising people that appreciate and understand hunting and you're not raising someone that is an anti-hunter. They don't have to hunt. They could be a non-hunter, but they at least understand the benefits of, of it. And so either way, you might not have the company and the camaraderie that you grew up with, Dave, but at least you have someone that's out there and can speak to it and be an advocate for it. Yeah, exactly. It, and, you know, again, my kids have never missed, you know, they're what, they're 20 and almost 18. They've never missed a season of deer hunting since they were 10. Uh, but it's just something that they don't do, you know, on their own with their buddies you know, that type of thing. How'd your season go this year, Dave? Uh, better than usual. Um, I, I elected not to shoot at anything in Minnesota, which is, uh, which is typical. Uh, I shot a decent buck in Wisconsin with my crossbow and I shot a really nice buck in South Dakota with a compound. So I shot two and most years I shoot one and it's not uncommon for me to not shoot any but i would say on average i usually shoot one so when i shoot two that's that's uh that's not common so that was a good season for me heck yeah it's a heck of a season especially when generally around the country most people felt like they didn't have a great year and it's unscientific but just most of the people i talked to oh it was tough this year so it sounds like you did really well and just based on your response you're sounds like you're looking for a particular type of deer so you're practicing some type of deer management in terms of terms of age structure uh do you get into the deer management thing very much do you do anything with uh property management or anything along those lines 
Yes. In, in Western Wisconsin, um, we own with my dad and my brother, we own a couple hundred acres and then we butt up against a large track of, uh, public land. And by large, I'm, I mean, large, it's about 20 square miles oh my. of, uh, of public and it's all hardwoods, no agriculture on it, no roads in it. Um, you know, people have to walk or, or pedal a bike or something like that. So we put in, you know, a handful of food plots on that Wisconsin property and we lure in, you know, a lot of deer, but again, it's, it's heavily hunted with firearms and it's over the counter uh, licenses for residents and non-residents. So the deer don't get uh, very old in Wisconsin. We certainly see some on trail cameras, but as often as the case, they, they play the disappearing act come come deer season. So when I'm in Wisconsin hunting with my dad and my brother and a couple of buddies, uh, it's more fill the freezer, to be quite honest with you. We've, we've got unlimited doe tags. Um, so I'm just looking to kill deer typically when I'm in Wisconsin. And most of the time I'm spending time with my dad. Again, I said he'll be 86 this December and it's been tremendously fun for me these last five years to simply sit with him in the forest most of the time <clears throat> i won't even bring a bow mm -hmm. i'll just i'll carry his crossbow and we'll go sit and we'll visit you know either a pop-up blind or more often than not a natural ground blind and uh you know to me it's just been such a joy to get back to you know spending time with him in the woods um, now in South Dakota, I'll hunt over there with a couple of buddies. We've got great permission property there. Um, and we see numbers of big deer in South Dakota. And, uh, I don't start hunting over there till around Halloween. I'll spend most of November, particularly the first two weeks of November in South Dakota. And, you know, of course I'm extremely picky when I'm hunting South Dakota, because we're seeing a lot of deer and a lot of big deer. Uh, you're living in a real sweet spot there. So the states you're talking about, um, you know, for a lot of people, it's just, uh, that would be a dream to be in that area. So I'm glad you're taking advantage of it. And also the stories about your dad are, are awesome. So I'm sure you, some of my fondest memories are whenever I was a kid and my dad would, I would hear the truck coming up the road on opening day, and I knew if it was coming before noon that there was likely a deer in the back of it. I'm guessing you probably have similar type memories. Yeah, and I, as I said, in northern Minnesota, just whether it was the tradition, it was too thick to do any deer drives, so we didn't do any driving of deer up there. We were all just sitting. Uh, there was no still hunting. It was too thick. But I, you know, I think back on it, I never once as a – as a young hunter sat with my dad in the woods. Oh, wow. You just, you just didn't do that. You know, you just, dad dropped you off and, you know, and that's how it was with my cousins who were all my age too. Everybody just got dropped off at a spot, whether it was a tree stand or a ground blind. And then you sat by yourself and then you came in at the end of the day, you know, you packed a lunch and that's how you, that's how you hunted. Um, so I didn't realize it until really late in life actually and i'm 50, i'll be 58 in april that i had never really spent time in the blind you know or the tree stand with my dad you know i he's the most passionate deer hunter i know and i had never seen him kill a deer 
he had never seen me kill a deer. It was always storytelling at the end of the day. So these last handful of years where I've really made it a priority to sit with him, um, you know, and you can whisper, you know, as your as your shoulder to shoulder and to be able to be there and we're not killing big deer, you know, don't get me wrong, but to see him kill it, you know, to kill a four corner, a six pointer with his crossbow or to shoot a small eight pointer, um, you know, with a rifle. And he was with me uh, this past this past uh, Thanksgiving time. And I was in a blind with with my dad and and my nephew. So my my dad's grandson. And we had a decent eight pointer walk out onto the food plot. And I was going to shoot first. It was gun season, but I was hunting with a crossbow and my dad had his rifle and then a bigger eight pointer stepped onto the food plot. And I wasn't going to shoot either deer because I'd already killed one in South Dakota. I didn't need any meat. These were two and a half year old four by fours, but good deer. And I was just enjoying it. I was smiling as big as I could smile. And these deer were close, 12, 14 yards feeding on clover. And I turned to my dad in this natural ground blind. And I just turned to look at him to just see if he was enjoying it as much as I was. And he was. He had a big smile on his face. But he, with his pointer finger, with his right hand, he pointed at that deer like, shoot that deer. <laughs> and, I, and, you know, it kind of all you know, rolled over in my mind, like he may not be around next year or the year after the year. And while it will always be a big memory for me to have passed a deer in that situation, if I shoot this deer, this is going to be one of the highlights of his hunting career, you know? And I realized that and I, and I shot the deer and made a good shot. It was, you know, I'm shooting a crossbow off of a, off of a tripod. And to this day, you know, I mean, I've heard him retell the story dozens of times. And, you know, was it a huge deer? No. Was it a big deal to him? And then ultimately to me? Absolutely. Hey, friends, Nick Penizzato here to tell you about the Furminator by Renews Outdoor Equipment. When I convinced my wife to buy hunting land, I didn't tell her about this little list I was keeping of must-haves to help me manage it. Eventually, she caught on and said if she'd have known about the add-ons, I probably wouldn't have land. Anyway, on the top of my list was the Furminator, which I use for all my food plot work, including disking, seeding, and call to packing. I have no idea what I'd do without mine, and I love it. The all-in-one food plot tool comes in several sizes, ranging from a 4-foot ATV model, which I have, up to an 8-foot tractor model that also includes a rototiller. For more information, visit theferminator.com. The Furminator the best food plot implement on earth. So Dave, I hear you say about the way that you were brought up and where the stories of the day's hunts and the telling of the stories of the day's hunts was a big part of your life. And do you think that the descriptives that needed to be in those stories as you were telling them and listening to them to put other people in that situation helped to contribute to your your writing you know i hear you talk and I, you're going along in a very nice even smooth clip and then what i love is that you interject a descriptive a detail about what you're talking about to help put us in that situation so i mean as i listen to you i can tell that 
when you are or when you are being brought up and even to this day when you tell a story you want to make sure that everybody is right there with you right along with you and do you think that was a lot of uh or a big part or a contribution from your upbringing i think so and and it's funny that you mentioned that too because with my nephews hunting now um you know one of them is 12 i mean there's there's five boys in my sister's family and all, all but one of them hunt. When we get together at my parents' house, you know, and the 12 year old and the 10 year old are there now. And we, and we, we sit around the dinner table and we tell the stories, you know, we're very careful to make sure that each of the boys, you know, gets to tell their story, you know, of the evening. And I'm always the one who's, Cause some of the boys, you know, everybody's a little different in how they tell their stories. And maybe this is me being the author. Um, but I'm always trying to slow them down and, you know, which way was the wind blowing, John, which way did the deer, when did you take your safety off the crossbow? Did the deer react to that? You know, and, and, and just try to get them to really think about, you know, what happened and, and talk for a few minutes about what happened. Love it. I could sit here and listen to these stories all day. So speaking of stories, I want to, I want you to tell us a little bit about uh, Grandview Outdoors, what you do there. Uh, and for folks that might, might not be aware. Sure. So I'm editor um, of Bowhunting World, which is our consumer magazine. Uh, print magazine, which is published seasonally, so four times a year. I'm also the editor of Archery Business, which is our trade publication. So that goes to archery shop owners, managers, um, you know, salesmen, that sort of thing to help them improve their business. And Archery Business is published six times a year. And of course, both of those brands, um, you know, have their own website and those websites are under the Grandview Outdoors. So grandviewoutdoors.com, you know, parent website. And that website has not only uh, hunting on it, but it's also got fishing on it. So it's a website that I can write really about anything having to do with the outdoors. And because I came into the outdoor industry from the fishing side as a fishing guide, and I still do a lot of fishing to this day, as much fishing as I do hunting. I'm able to write uh, fishing content for Grandview Outdoors, as well as, you know, deer hunting and other bow hunting content for, for bow hunting world and archery business. And I'm just curious how you keep up with it, because you're a very prolific writer. And so whenever Grandview Outdoors hits my uh, inbox, which it, it did, I actually it was in there this morning. Your name is at the top of a lot of articles. So I'm curious, how do you keep up with all that? Are you writing a lot throughout the day? It, yeah. You know, when people ask me what, you know, what's my nine to five, like, um, you know, I work from seven 30 till five each day. Um, we're blessed, uh, at our work. We have one of those, um, what do you call it? Uh, nine eighty or 89 schedules where if you get your 80 hours in, in, in nine days, you get your every other Friday off. So, so I do that. So I get every other Friday off, but I'm, I'm certainly kicking it in the tail from seven 30 till five each day. And I spend, um, I would say I spend about 50% of my time editing freelance content, 
which would be for uh, either the print magazines, Bow Hunting World or Archery Business, you know, keeping those balls rolling. Um, and then 50% of my day doing original writing for either of those brands, Bow Hunting World or Archery Business, or the parent website, uh, Grandview Outdoors. Because as you know, the internet websites, in terms of content, you, it's like feeding the monster. You can never write, you're never caught up, let's put yeah. it that way. You're, with print magazines, I can be caught up. But with a website, you're never caught up because there's always another story, uh, you know, another interesting tale to tell or or news brief to to write about. So, yeah, I'm definitely I'm definitely busy. And I suppose the more that you do it and the more decades you do it, the faster you are. So I don't really get, uh, you know, so-called writer's block. You know, maybe I'll stumble over a, a, a title or a subtitle, but I'm. I'm pretty much able to just jump right in and just begin writing. Yeah. So Dave, I have a question for you. So you talked about 50% of your time is spent acting as an editor for people that freelance. So let's talk about that for a second, just because um, I write or I have to write for my job uh, manuscripts from, you know, based on original research and things like that. And the one thing that I was always taught in my training was that the feedback from either peer reviewers or editors is always something that's very valuable because it, um, it literally is an education, it's a tutorial for you. So uh, I've always found that beneficial. So can we take just a few seconds, let's talk about maybe someone that's like an aspiring freelance writer, someone that just had a really unique experience that wants to write and see if they can get it published. So top, let's say three to five tips for a freelancer that can help speed up their learning curve? Well, the, the first thing would be, uh, if you write about something you know about, uh, you know, that's, it, it, it's, it's so easy to see a fake. So if you write about something you know about, that's, that's the main thing. Don't, don't try to pretend you know, and write about some topic that you're, that you're not, uh, you know, uh, an expert in. So write about what you know about for sure. Um, the second thing is I would, I, at least I do this. Don't worry. Um, you know, I don't sit down with it and maybe this is different than what I learned in college, but I don't sit down with an outline, you know, and, and make sure I hit this, this, that I just, I just kind of let it roll the first time. Just get something down and just kind of let it see where it takes you. Cause sometimes you'll be kind of surprised, you know, as to, as to where the path leads. So I just, I just begin writing it and it's going to be too long. Initially, it's always too long and poor <laughs> writing is always longer than good, concise, shorter writing, but just get something down on paper and then put it away. You know, that's not the that's not the final draft. Just put it away. And by that, I mean, go on to something else. Don't even look at it the rest of that day. Then go back a day later and don't just pick up where you left off. Start at the beginning and now read it like somebody who, you know, like a stranger, like an editor is going to re read it, read it slowly. And then think about, 
oh, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, I'm assuming the writer would know that, but the writer wouldn't know that. So I need to add something in here so that makes sense. And have some subheads, you know, to kind of carry you along, break up, break up the copy. But, you know, put it away, then come back, modify it. Again, put it away for a day, and then come back to it. And if you do that a few times, you'll see that there's whole paragraphs that can be deleted because it's like, well, that, that doesn't really help with the story. So you'll find that your, your finished text gets shorter, more concise, more interesting. And it, it ultimately then makes uh, for a lot less work for the, for the editor at the end as well. And that's a great point. And there's something that I do want to point out on the flip side of that about editing it down or being to make it more concise or th synthesize it. But also when you put it away, which is a great tip and almost let your mind forget about it in its very raw detail that when you do come back to read it, sometimes I've found for at least my, my research writing is that my brain fills in information. And so therefore I have sometimes gaps that I know that my brain put in there. But when you said you read it very closely, very slowly as a reader, someone that doesn't have that experience, you can fill in those gaps as well that are needed to be there so that you have a nice smooth flow. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I, I find this all the time when I'm gathering news stories, um, for our website or whatever it might be. And I'm clicking on links to stories and the main points of a story will be there. And I realize as I'm reading it, I'm like, you know, it's a deer hunting story. Let's just say and it's like the author hasn't even said what state they're in. <laughs> it's like, and you know, yeah, if you go up to the header and you realize that it's a news story from such and such, and then I have to Google where that news company is even from it's like at least take the time to set the scene so people you know have some you can't assume the reader knows everything you know, out of the game. so that's good advice they have a couple more questions for you here we'll get you out of here being cognizant of your very busy writing schedule um over the years and you've been doing this a long time are there a couple stories or maybe even one story that really stands out to you as being sort of either crazy or off the wall, or, or maybe it wasn't crazy, but it was just very uh, profound in a certain way. Anything stand out in that way? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, we had, I had one happen last fall. Um, I had a friend, I don't have a lot of property in South Dakota. So I usually invite one buddy to come hunt this uh, 160 acre river bottom. Cause I don't want to overhunt it. And we've learned that the, the, the less time we spend on the property, the better the hunting is. So I could bring three or four friends, but I only bring one. And quite often we sit together, you know, uh -huh. so we're not impacting the property as much, you know. Um, and in this particular case, I had a good friend, you know, I mean, I went from kindergarten through college with him. So long time friend. And he's bow hunting the far eastern part of the property, not far off a of minimum maintenance road. And this is fairly open country. And he had my he had my Dave Smith decoy posturing buck decoy out in the meadow, about a hundred yards off of this minimum maintenance road, fairly wide open terrain, and we'd been seeing some really good deer, 
you know, some 140, 150, even 160 type wow. deer. And fun, and he had a couple close calls with a couple of these deer. And I was hunting about a half mile away. And then we're texting back and forth, you know, throughout the day to keep track of who's doing what. And right at right before sunset one evening, one of the giants steps out of the woods, you know, like a 160 type deer. And it's coming across the meadow, sees the DSD, ears are pinned back, hair is up. It's doing the stiff-legged walk, you know, as you've seen on videos. And it's go, it's 50, it's 40, it's 30, it's 25. He's just getting ready to draw the bow. And all of a sudden the buck locks up, stops for just a split second, it's head on to him. And then it takes off and it runs into our sanctuary. And my buddy, the wind was right. Everything was right. And what is going on? Well, then he hears ATVs oh, no. out on the minimum maintenance road. And it was the neighboring farmers moving cattle. So they're clanking along at the, you know, the gate and whatever. And they come through the gate. Well, they look up the meadow hundred yards away. They see a hunter in a tree and they see a, a, a four by four bucket, 15 yards. They don't know it's a Dave Smith decoy, oh. right? They think it's a deer. So they realize, oh, we're screwing up this hunter. So they back up and leave, go a different direction. Well, at dark, I'm meeting my buddy at, at this other gate half a mile away while these landowners show up on their ATVs and they say, oh, we're so sorry we screwed you up or whatever. Well, my buddy says, you know, you yes, you screwed me up. But what you saw was the decoy. You didn't see the big buck. And they're like, oh, yeah, that looks like a live deer. So they were apologetic. Now, a little more to this story. They're not the best neighbors. And I'm fairly certain that they stole the lone wolf tree stand and some climbing sticks from me. Oh, no. And a decoy about a decade ago. Anyway, so that's part of the story. <laughs> So I said to my friend, I'm like, dang, we're going to have to really be careful where we hide that decoy because now they know that it's a decoy. I'm a little concerned that they might steal my $600 DSD. Well, the next day, we get a couple inches of fresh snow, cold. We're only able to make it till about noon. And I texted my buddy. He's in the same stand, same decoy. And and uh, I said, Paul, why don't I meet you at the truck? We'll just drive around the, the, the perimeter, do a five-mile drive, warm up the truck, quick, grab a bite to eat, and then you can get back in the stand. Yeah, that sounds good. We do that. He hikes back into his stand, and he texts me when he's on the minimum maintenance road within sight of the, of the meadow and his tree stand. And he texts me, and he says, bad news, Dave. Neighbors stole the decoy. Oh. I'm like, oh my God. So he walks across the meadow and the neighbors didn't steal the decoy. <laughs> it's on the ground. And with the fresh snow, he could see a big track where it came out 15 yards from his stand out into the meadow, absolutely plowed the DSD and broke. If you've hunted with a DSD, I mean, it's got fairly thick antlers where they plug into the skull. Yeah. Severed them. I mean, didn't just knock the decoy over, absolutely severed the antlers from the head. And then you can see where the buck like 
took a couple of bounds away, turned to look at it, and then walked back into the woods. So he texted me a picture of the destroyed DSD. And I thought, man, what would I, what would I have paid <laughs> to have watched either of those instances on back-to-back -back days? <laughs> that big 160 coming in and them spooking it at exactly the wrong time. And then my buddy to sit in that stand from dark to dark and have that buck show up in the 25 minutes that he's gone. Wow. I, this sounds so familiar to me, Mike. I mean, this is a classic you and I hunting story. I mean, <laughs> well, this is actually, we're, we're good. I think our B team report is covered for the day because this is us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is uh wow. 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 Hey, I got one more, one more question for you, Dave. We'll get you out of here. And I might, I might know the answer to this based on some things you've already said, but uh, you get one chance to do your, your, your hunt of a lifetime. What is it? Oh boy. Um, I would say two things. First off, I, you know, if all, all through my life, I've said, I'd love to shoot a big Alaska Yukon moose with a bow. I think that that would be the ultimate. And I watch enough YouTube videos, um, you know, just, and, and obviously I'll never be able to afford that type of a hunt. Um, I was thankful enough to go on a hunt with my dad and my brother for moose and caribou in the into British Columbia horseback trip um, back in the year 2000, you know, great memory. So that would be a, a, a bucket list hunt. But when I think back on in, you know, like if somebody said, you know, what's your favorite hunt? My son asked me this a while back, what's your favorite hunt? And when I think back of like my, even my top 10 or 12 hunting memories, none of them, like literally not one involves a hunt that I was on by myself, hmm. you know, and I've killed some good deer certainly. Um, but all of them have to do with somebody else. You know, I was in the blind or I was in a tree stand, you know, with somebody else. So I'm hoping that, you know, in the next five, 10, 15 years or whatever, um, you know, that I'll have more of those memories watching other people. I get more enjoyment over other people shooting deer or turkeys or whatever than I ever do myself. Um, so I guess I just hope for more of those. Yeah, that's a great answer. Uh, and, you know, I'll say too, in closing here, uh, we certainly appreciate what you do, Dave. We're big fans of yours here at the NDA. We appreciate that you will share uh, our content often or comment on our content, which we very much appreciate. And uh, when I was talking to Lindsay Thomas uh, about having you on the show, he's like, oh yeah, yeah, definitely get Dave on there. So we're excited to have you on and thank you for taking the time to do this today. Well, you guys, you guys produce, you know, incredibly interesting, informative, valuable content. Um, I think super highly of all the work that you do, it's important work. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I will say this, you know, there's, you know, we talked a little bit off camera, um, you know, before we even recorded this, there's a lot of controversial topics, whether it's trail cams or baiting or, um, you know, passing up small deer for, for bigger deer or non-resident tags. And, 
organizations like yours, companies like mine, um, you know, we have to tackle these topics, certainly, but it's my hope going forward that all of us can at least do so, you know, in a respectful way, you know, in a civil way. And if it gets right down to it, we can agree to disagree, perhaps on topics, but we need to keep in mind that we're all on the same team and we're all working towards the same goal. Well, that's perfectly said, and we appreciate that. Folks, you can find more about Grandview Outdoors at grandviewoutdoors.com. They also have an Instagram and Facebook page. Subscribe to their newsletter. It is, I mean, you can subscribe to a million of those things nowadays, but it's the one that I subscribe to, and I always look forward to getting and checking out the cool videos and articles. It's just very well done. So, Dave, thank you again for doing this, and I uh, look forward to catching up with you soon. Thanks for your time, and good luck hunting. Some of my favorite interviews that we do, Mike, are the ones where our guest is giving the answer and then I'm just sort of listening along and then I almost forget that I have a job to do here and I need to come up with the next question. And that's kind of how it went with Dave. I just really enjoyed hearing his stories. I could relate to many of them and uh, I'm sure you could as well. Yeah, for sure. I, I like uh, I like hearing people tell stories, especially someone that's a good storyteller and when uh, I, that's one reason I asked that question is because when you listen to Dave talk, and if a you know a listener wants to go back and listen to this again, if you're ever thinking about, hey, I might like to write, you can hear Dave tell his stories and interject those key features that are going to either better describe it or better help you create a, a mental picture in your head. Those are always some of the characteristics of very good writers. Yeah, and I thought that was some great bonus content we got there with him. That uh, was your, a great question from you asking him about tips for aspiring writers, and he gave some great ones. And that wasn't an anticipated path of the interview. And we do that often. We have a plan, and then we will sometimes go off track a little bit. Not off track, but just deviate to another path, and it results in some good stuff like that. So uh, thanks again to Dave for taking time out of his schedule to do that with us. All right, Mike, before we get any further, I think it's that time. It's time for the B-Team Report. All right, Mike, well, I'll go first. It's my turn to go first, and I got a fresh one. Okay. As we talk about, often it's good to learn lessons the hard way because uh, as long as there's no injuries involved. <laughs> Uh, because then you remember them. And I'll talk about this in a second, but as you know, my uh, camp building arrived. So very excited about that. I'll talk about that in a second. But one of the first things I wanted to do, and the, and the camp that that we got is came essentially turnkey with the exception of like electricity and heating and whatnot. But I wanted to put a floor in it as well, as opposed to just using the subfloor that they have there. And I wanted to go with the luxury vinyl plank. So LVP is for short is what it's called. And I've laid this floor in the past and have experience with it. Uh, it's just wonderful stuff. It's pretty much indestructible. It'll be easy to clean up. And yes, it's not hardwood or anything like that, but it's very functional. And so my plan was the very first thing I'm going to do is lay this vinyl plank flooring and get that done. And then I can move forward with the other things I want to do and just especially before you get anything in there, you don't have to move anything out of the way. 
And so I go up on, I guess it would have been Saturday. And my plan is to start working on this floor and knock out a big bunch of it, maybe finish it up on Sunday. And so I start with the first row, got my measurements. I'm pretty confident and start putting this stuff together. And I'm noticing about three, about three planks in, I chipped one of them. And I thought to myself, are you kidding me? Like this stuff should not break. What the heck's going on? All right. Maybe it was just a freak uh, accident or something went wrong there. So a couple more pieces, same thing. I break another piece and then a third piece. And now I'm really losing my mind because I'm like, this stuff is like, I mean, I've just be, I, I picked it up at an Ollie's. And so I'm thinking that they just have like a pallet of junk that they were getting rid of, but it just was what I liked the most. And the price was good. And I thought this is what I'm going with. And so then I'm, I'm sort of cursing the, the quality of it. And then all of a sudden it dawns on me. Is there a minimum temperature at which you should be installing this stuff? Because this isn't wood, this is vinyl. And I'm noticing like it seems really rigid to me. So at that point, yep, the light bulb went off in old Mr. Obvious's head there. <laughs> yeah, I do a little search and I look and it says, do not install at temperatures below 65 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh. Mike, what was the temperature here on Saturday? I don't know because I was up in New York and I was the one that sent you that picture of that snow squall. We had, uh, what was it, Saturday? 24 i think up here so it we're always about nine degrees colder than you so that puts you probably somewhere just above freezing yeah it was in the mid 30s like 35 to 38 depending on the time of day and so yeah that is not 65 degrees and so luckily it was a b team definitely but it wasn't a b minus <laughs> so at least i kept <laughs> it to a b and i just set aside the pieces that i had broken which you, you need extra pieces anyway and you need scraps and and so on when you're doing these floors but anyway yeah i will not be putting that floor in until i either either the weather improves dramatically or i get heat in there to get the temperature up above 65 and quit breaking vinyl planks so mike there's my b team report it always seems to involve financial loss at some level and i have uh, basically none of the floor down so here we are well, and I feel for you because when I was putting up my, or not putting up, but um, residing my garage up here in the fall, I was using the T111 siding, but I was also putting PVC board at the bottom because I was doing it myself. And if I could get that PVC board leveled, it would actually and get one edge in and it would actually help hold the T111 sheet so I didn't dislocate my thumb like I did um, when I was working on that project anyways. But you know what I, you know, as well as I was, uh, is that I was working on it into hunting season. So I'd get home after work and I'd work until dark. And sometimes even by headlamp, well, the temperature was dropping from 55 degrees down into the high thirties. And I was nailing this in. And if I didn't nail one in and it completely shattered the board at an irregular location and an irregular break. And cause it's plastic PVC is just plastic and it got too cold and it shattered and they were $45 per, you know, what, eight foot piece. So yeah, financially it can really get you hard. And so I just all stopped at that point, waited till the warm day finished. And then I stopped and I still have one more side of the garage to finish yet that I couldn't get to. Yeah. I mean, and so I, I am not a professional carpenter or anything like that, but I, I am handy. I can do most things. 
on my own and or figure it out or with a little help from my dad or you know something along those lines but every once in a while i run into one of these things that i hadn't encountered before and learned my lesson the hard way all right mike you're up all right so full disclosure i guess i i have to say that either i'm unlucky or i'm getting older because I think this is just an unlucky thing, but both of those things are true, by the way. Yeah, that's true. But uh, as we were talking about, you know, for a fact that uh, because I'm finally staying here at camp, I can collect maple syrup, which was something that, or sap, I should say, because it was something I always wanted to do and then turn it into maple syrup. And so uh, again, big thanks to Matt Ross from the NDA, who's kind of helping mentor me on this, but I was out putting in my taps on Saturday because the temperature was right. And up here, we still have snow that is over my ankles, especially in some spots in the woods. So I'm walking along with my backpack. I have my tool belt on with my tapping hammer, my drill, and I already have my sugar maple trees marked. And so I'm going along, got the first four done. Everything's going great. Well, then I have a small little sugar bush that runs along a creek on a gully that's in the easterly side of my property. And so the gully itself is rather steep. It's probably a 60 degree angle down to the creek. And it's probably 70 to 80 feet in length, maybe a little bit more than that, but it's, it's pretty steep. And so the snow is so deep that I'm walking along and I'm really making sure that I'm digging my foot in to make sure I have good footing because all these trees are on the slope. And what I didn't realize was that there was a limb, and, and if you've been in the woods long enough, everybody's done it. There was a limb that has broken and fallen, laying on the ground, hidden underneath the snow. And that limb is a large enough diameter that if you step on it in the arch of your boot, in the forefoot of your boot, in your heel, do not touch. And that limb is pointing downhill. That's where you're going. And so I'm sitting there with the drill in my hand. Now, the one last thing I want to say is that the drill bit to tap a tree is different, which I didn't know, than other drill bits. It has a very sharp, very aggressive um, angle to the point, but also a very sharp uh, spiral on the leading edge of that blade that will cut you. It's like a knife or like a razor because you're trying to cut into this tree very clean and keep those pores open so the sap flows. So I have the drill bit in my right hand. I step on that log and down I go, right onto my left thigh, butt cheek, and I'm sliding down this hill toward the creek, which is not frozen and it's flowing. And what happens is I rip my pants and I'm going to say that they were not just regular jeans or something. Like they were actually supposed to be like really heavy duty work pants. I'm not going to say the company because I still like the product, but must've caught on a, uh, like a rock or something because I have a really nice raspberry up the left thigh to the butt cheek. But um, rip that, that, by the way. Hey, you're welcome. There's a visual for everybody. But um, the problem was, is I'm still sliding. Now I have a rip. What I'm doing is I'm packing snow inside my pants, number one. I'm trying to stop myself. So I'm flailing around. If I don't cut myself, my left hand, with the drill bit that's in my right hand, and I don't stop until I hit the water and both of my boots go above the top of the water line. So now I have like just nearly freezing water in both boots, ripped pants, snow packed up inside my pants. I'm a, I'm a wreck. 
I'm just a total wreck down at the bottom here. And the kicker is, is I have to get out. There's no really flat place to get out unless I walk down about 300 yards. So I'm trying to crawl out, slipping and sliding. Needless to say, I have to come back, resort myself, and then go back and finish my tapping. So there's my B-team story for the day. And another B-team story from you that involves a fall. So I know. Gonna have to and it, like a fall that does take me back to the house. Yeah, it's like a face full of mud or a, a left pants buttock area full of snow. I mean, when I say packed with snow, it was packed about the size of like a like a soccer ball or a volleyball. I mean, it was oh. packed in there. Jeez. Well, we can be thankful it wasn't worse than that. So there you have it, folks. The B team report never disappoints. All right. A few things we want to get to here before we. Uh, call it a show. Mike, I did mention that the, my camp building has arrived, and thank you for riding along for that. It was nice uh, you were home. We got a chance to hang out a little bit. And yeah, I got a question for you and maybe the listeners here. I'm, as you know, I want to put a wood stove in this thing for heat. Because to me, if you're going to have a, a camp building, there's just something about the sound and the smell of burning a fire in there, even though I know it's not the most convenient. So I'm really going back and forth with sort of a full-size wood stove. And by the way, mine has to have glass on it because I want to see the fire. Otherwise, it just defeats the whole point. Or one of these, what they call tiny wood stove. So they're quite a bit smaller. They don't take up much space, but they'll still heat 1,200 square feet. or whatever. I, my, It's not 1,200. I only need to, I need to heat like 450 to 500 square feet here. But I don't know, Mike, do I go with something smaller that's going to have less of a footprint and still give me the view and the smell of the fire or do i need to still go with something uh, bigger to see it more it'll be more expensive of course and it'll also be more heat than i need so i have a feeling i know what your answer might be but what are you thinking well um those those tiny stoves are fine and i, I will say like to be honest with you and being in your place i think the tiny stove will be just fine, especially since that you have the the backup of using electricity there. So because um that little overhang balcony there or little uh, crawl space where most likely Will is going to stay and where you want to put that stove, I think a big stove with a raging fire would just bake him right out of there. I mean, it, he'll, he'll shrivel up like a raisin. And <laughs> I think that it would be just uncomfortable. So as much as I'd want you to put in there, because truthfully, you can burn a wood stove and just don't burn it hot, you know, putting less fuel in, picking your fuel, like, believe it or not, I mean, each tree species has a rated BTU. You can pick wood that has a lower burn temperature, gives off less BTUs and probably be fine, but that becomes work. You just want to, if, if you find a limb down your property or a tree down, you want to just be able to buck it up bring it back and have a little bit of wood and have some fun. That's fine. You can also choke it off. There's a lot of ones that I would say, if you get a bigger one, then get one with a really good amount of air control so that you can actually provide that fire what it needs, which is oxygen and control its temperature that way. So those are things to think about, but truthfully to have a smaller version of one that you can just stoke up and crank and it just makes the place comfortable is fine. Um, you're, like you said, you're going to lose a little bit of ambience, a little bit of that light in the evening where you can sit there and watch that, that fire in there, that nice orange, you know, deep orange color, just kind of roll up very relaxingly and, um, you know, kind of gives you that warm feeling inside too, you know, but, um, 
if you do overkill, if you do a full-size stove, you're just going to have to burn less fuel, either a lower BTU fuel or give it less oxygen. So having really good air controls would be my suggestion to, to at least provide you the information so that you can make a decision. Because I don't make decisions for people. I tend to give them the facts from what my experience is and then let them make their decision for what they believe is going to work for them. Okay. Well, folks, if you're listening to this and you have a suggestion, I'm happy to hear it. Uh, some people were go big or go home. Some people were say, don't do that. So anyway, I'm, I'm kind of torn. Price is also part of it. Uh, these, these tiny wood stoves, you can get really nice looking ones for around 500 bucks and a bigger one. You're looking at a thousand just, just for sort of an entry level one, not even one that's got fancy blowers and that type of thing on it. So you can spend a lot of money on it and I don't want to get crazy with it. So at any rate, looking forward to that next phase of the project. Uh, hey, Mike, I got to hold some bear cubs the other day. That was pretty cool. Went I saw that on your Instagram and Facebook feed. Yep. Yeah. I was going to tell folks if you're uh, really bored and happen to be following me on social media, you can go to my Instagram page, NDA, uh, NDA Nick P, and see the photos there. But yeah, that was a cool thing I got to do with the Pennsylvania Game Commission and the University of Pennsylvania Wildlife Futures Program. So check that out. That was a neat experience, something I've never done before. I've only been part of the processing of the big bears, which uh, is, a, is a different experience altogether. Uh, and on a habitat front, Mike, I went out and frost seeded yesterday. Oh, good. Yeah. You were talking about that. Yeah, I like to be around March 20th. And so when I say frost seed, by the way, <laughs> it, was, it was 21 degrees and it was a 15 mile per hour wind. And so the real challenge was being able to get that seed on the ground without it just blowing away. Uh, and so anyway, uh, I did that. Uh, Whitetail Institute clover um, is, is what I was using. And also, uh, Mike, I got one of those Hoyman, uh, Hoyman or Hoyman, however you want to pronounce it, 24-volt seeders. That's a pretty sweet thing. It does a nice job of giving you a steady uh, flow of seed at whatever rate you want. And I found that to work pretty well yesterday. You were talking about that and it was, you should have actually included a picture. I was really, cause we, I didn't get a chance to see it, but you did mention it and it did sound like a neat concept. Yeah. I'm going to put together, I think a little video, maybe even for, for the NDA, if we decide to use it just on frost seeding. And so, yeah, it was uh, as cold as it was, it was still a really good day to do some frost seeding. I'm looking forward to uh, seeing some Imperial whitetail clover popping up here sometime this spring. So how about you? Have you, other than the maple syrup, path. Maybe that's what you want to talk about. I know you've been focused on that a little bit. Well, it is because it's something that it's very time sensitive because to actually have good quality, you have to keep it fresh. So um, actually I was delving into a process called freeze distillation, which actually helps to increase the sugar content and get rid of just some of the water that I'd have to boil off anyway, since I'm going small scale, but I haven't been able to get in the woods. I talked about this the last time where we still have in some places, five inches of snow, six inches of snow in some spots, and it's just not safe out there. I can't move as quickly in case of an emergency as I need to. It's crusting over because we're getting some warmer days. So um, I guess I could always go in and um, I don't even know what I would, I would feel comfortable doing because uh, everything involves power equipment for me right now. And so for me, especially being here alone, away from a lot of civilization safety is the key. And so I'm just going to wait because 
This is a this is a lifelong thing. I don't need to race to get it done. I've waited 10 years to be able to get up here anyways. And I always got a little bit done every year of being a distance landowner. I'm going to get more done than I ever would have anyways. So I have to put everything in perspective and just be safe so I can do it again and again and again for years to come. Well, we look forward to following along with that hobby. And folks, I would encourage you, if you hear us talking about these things that we know nothing about, which is most of it, always send us your tips, tricks, and ideas and help us along. <laughs> we, do, we do appreciate them. We're, ac we're actually experts on almost nothing. So anyway, if there's anything you can help us out on, please don't be shy. Send those to nick at deerassociation.com. Well, folks, it's been a great show. Good to be with you again today. Uh, I want to remind you that we are still giving away, or not giving away, we are raffling off uh, an elk tag and also a whole bunch of other cool gear that goes with it. So it's far more than just uh, the elk tag. And so uh, if you have not purchased tickets for that yet, you have until March 5th to do that. And so uh, some of the details of that trip are, or some, some of the details of that item are in addition to the elk tag, this is a 2023 Kentucky elk tag. You're going to get a Savage High Country 300 Win Mag rifle. You're going to get the Vortex Diamondback HD sport, uh, Spotting Scope, Vortex High Country 2 Tripod Kit, Vortex Crossfire HD 8x42 Binoculars, Vortex Diamondback 4x12x40 BDC Scope, and also a Vortex Rangefinder. So it's a Vortex Savage Kentucky elk tag package. So please get your chances on that. Help the National Deer Association. Also, follow us on our social media uh, accounts, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook. We're on all of them. Uh, make sure you do that as well. Hey, also, before I get out of here, we're going to give away a hat. The doctor always has to remind me. He's like pointing to his hat in the, in the video. Uh, it's going to go to Ed in Pennsylvania uh, for his tough question about the Pennsylvania deer hunting season opening on a monday instead of a saturday or saturday instead of a monday so thank you for that ed we'll get you an nba hat we appreciate it thanks again for joining us folks always a great time hope you enjoyed it today national deer association where we are united for deer